Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. Nice candy. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hey guys, and welcome to The Cooking Show. I am your host, Bob. And I'm going to be honest with you, right at the top here, um, here at the at the Cooking Show household, uh, several of us have a bit of a stomach bug this weekend. So, uh, you know, I did, I did make something that we'll talk about in this episode, but I did not eat it. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I will eat it tomorrow, but uh, I was not feeling like eating any food that, tonight. So uh, I put together something that is, it's fairly common. And I want to talk more about like the history and the construction and little, you know, basically an assembly methodology for it, as opposed to really like specific ingredients or whatever. What we did today was beef Florentine pinwheels and had had to overcome a couple obstacles uh, in making this. But um, we'll talk about the origin of the Florentine style dish, uh, some of the practical reasons why this particular preparation became popular, as well as the origin of the name and, uh, you know, the actual recipe that I used here. You check the show notes, you'll see the, the imager album of the, the, the pictorial walkthrough of the recipe will be on there. Um, not going to have any special equipment or ingredients for this one will be fairly fairly simple and straightforward so what is what is a florentine style dish or a preparation now not to be confused with bistecca florentino which is uh which is basically a um like a porterhouse or a t-bone cut from oh, i can't even remember the name of the breed it's a it's it's a it's a cattle breed that is very popular in florence and different parts of italy but this, this steak would have been cut at a full uh, vertebrae thickness. Uh, if you watch, uh, what is that show? Chef's Table on Netflix. There is an episode with Dario Ciccini, who has a you know, Florentine, I would call it like a Florentine steakhouse. But, you know, the, the Bistecca Florentina is the, the premier item on his menu. And it's this ridiculous three to four inch thick steak cooked black and blue rare over uh, a wood fire. It's very nice, but that is not what I'm talking about at all. Probably talk too much about what it isn't, <laughs> but I wanted to illustrate that so that you didn't come in thinking, oh man, I'm talking about, you know, giant anvil shaped T-bones when in fact we're talking about flat steaks rolled up with spinach and cheese, baby. Um, so, <laughs> so the Florentine moniker is generally applied to a dish that involves a protein, all chicken, pork, beef, veal, lamb—you know, all the great, all the great proteins—wrapped uh, around a a spinach and cheese filling, and then often, oftentimes, particularly with the chicken dishes, it will be served with uh, like a cream sauce, like a mornay or something like that. But generally speaking, we're looking at cheese and leafy green vegetables wrapped in a nice thin cut of meat and that is your florentine preparation why first of all why is it called florentine um so word on the street is when catherine de medici married henry ii of france and they merged these two dynasties 
uh, Catherine brought with her lots of recipes from Florence and and uh, Central Italy, as well as ingredients, cooking utensils, different techniques, a, a fleet of you know, in-house chefs and in uh, wait staff. You know, she basically brought the whole uh, cuisine element of the Medici court to her new relationship and uh, chicken florentine was sort of the the marquee preparation that took the name okay so it's basically because it came from florence that this was considered florentine now let's talk about the practical application of of wrapping spinach in a cut of meat why why spinach why why is this such a a consistent method of preparing food and I can't find, I can't find any peer-reviewed research on this, but I do have, you know, a, a, a top-of-the-head hypothesis as to why this would have been popular. First off, first off, when we're looking at the, the, the cuts of meat that would have been uh, used, even whenever you're looking at beef and veal and stuff like that, you're looking at things like the hanger steak, the flank steak, the skirt steak, you know, these flat, easily, you know, uh, uh, trimmed and rolled pieces of meat. They tend to come from the, the lower like abdominal region of, of the cow. You know, your hanger steak is taken off of either side of the abdomen after the viscera is removed. You know, the plate, the navel, the inside skirt, all these, all these cuts of meat are going to be in fa fairly close proximity to the bad parts of the cow, the viscera, the internal organs. So, you know, if you think back a couple of hundred years ago, or if you go back to 1533 with Catherine de' Medici, um, cleanliness, refrigeration, sanitation, not super well-known, understood, or even invented yet. So you'd have a lot of opportunity for cross-contamination in the course of slaughtering and processing um, animal proteins for consumption. And it just so happens that spinach is a very, uh, is a, is a natural vector for high, high concentrations of nitrate, which is a molecule that, uh, when, when broken down by microbial action, um, produces nitrite, which is a nitrogen atom with two oxygen atoms attached to it. That particular molecule, if you refer back to our bacon episode, which was, was that a first episode one, episode two, one of those, I don't know. Um, but if you go back to there, listen to that discussion of, of why nitrites are important and as an extension, why nitrates are important is because when that nitrate is broken down into nitrite, the resulting nitrite is a fairly robust hey there's that word again <laughs> it's a fairly robust chemical prophylactic against botulism right the c botulinum bacteria doesn't grow well it doesn't thrive in the presence of nitrite so by having nitrite uh, present um, you can put off some of the spoilage and and foodborne illness vectors that you would otherwise be susceptible to um, by using these softer uh, abdominal cuts of beef. Okay. Now using herbs, spices, and sort of like these biological, uh, uh, interrupters <laughs> is very, um, it, 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 it's well-known, well-studied, 
and prevalent in the in the culinary world prior to refrigeration. Um, things like um, beef tartare or just preparations of raw meat that are heavily seasoned with things like garlic and different herbs and spices. The reason for that, one, is that the heavily the heavy flavors and aromas of these herbs and spices will hide slight spoilage in the meat itself. So when you're trying to extend the palatability of a very expensive protein, you know, basically dredging it in garlic will, one, uh, impart a very strong garlicky smell, which will cover up any uh, rancidity aromas that you'll have. But then garlic itself is also an antimicrobial agent, so it can kind of slow or halt the progression of pathogenic bacterial growth, which, you know, in turn makes, while it makes the meat more palatable, more appetizing from an appearance or an aroma standpoint, it also makes it uh, safer to eat even in the presence of bad bacteria. And then, you know, assuming that people's digestive systems and their, their gut biome has evolved or has been trained to deal with local pathogens, it might retard the growth of bad bacteria to the point where your gut can take care of the rest and protect you from infection. Um, this way, you know, if you travel somewhere and just drink the tap water, you might get deathly ill because your gut flora hasn't hasn't been trained to deal with whatever microbes or parasites are in the water, whereas the indigenous or local population uh, would have. So that's, uh, you know, that's one thing. So the idea is that, you know, when you think about it, it's like, why, why are we putting spinach in all this meat? You know, spinach isn't a particularly flavorful uh, ingredient. I mean, especially coming from Italy, when you have access to things like basil and chive and and thyme and whatever other herbs that are more flavorful and fragrant, it's like spinach is an odd choice. Like, why wouldn't it be basil? Like, spinach it does have that practical application of potentially potentially mitigating uh, some of the bad effects of let's say less than sanitary meat products. Additionally. Because these things are are rolled tightly and tied, what you're doing is you're you're creating an anaerobic environment inside of this thing, you know, this this rolled pinwheel of meat. Uh, by tying it down tightly, uh, you're suppressing oxygen from the center. Which uh, you know, if there's a little bit of fermentation, some of the natural sugars in the spinach you know, ferment to get a little lactobacillus action there. It'll add a little bit of acidity, but it will also transform that naturally occurring nitrate into nitrite, which then could slightly, slightly preserve the meat that you are trying to extend there. So let's talk about the Florentine style pinwheel uh, and how you put it together. Normally, normally you'll use a flat steak like the aforementioned uh, skirt steak or the flank steak or something like that. Uh, I went to two different grocery stores today and could not find a flank steak or a skirt steak to save my life. I don't know if they're in, in, in short supply or if they're in high demand or if I just went to the wrong store. I don't know, but I couldn't find one. So I fell back on a very cheap and unremarkable cut of meat, the eye of round roast that comes out of you know, the hind leg of a cow. Despite the fact that it looks like, you know, on paper, the eye of round seems like it would have a lot going for it. You know, the muscle fibers are all kind of parallel with each other, very similar to 
the beef tenderloin. However, the Eye of Round is nothing like a beef tenderloin. It's not as tender. It has no real flavor to speak of. Uh, it doesn't have a really great mouthfeel. It's kind of a somewhat worthless cut of meat. Uh, whenever I had the butcher shop, we would use Eye of Round exclusively for making Bressola, which is like a dry cured, air dried, um, uh, sort of like a like a prosciutto like product made of beef. And uh, that was one way to get a lot of flavor and interesting texture and, and mouthfeel and stuff into this otherwise unremarkable cut of, of beef. But the reason I chose this is because it is very uniform, right? It's like this log of muscle fibers that all kind of go in one direction, which means that it's easy to fillet or to butterfly and open up and unroll uh, so that we can put things in the middle and then roll it back up again. Also, because I'm going to be kind of trying to impart as much flavor into this as possible, because this is one of those things that people make a mistake when preparing pinwheels or Florentine, is that they, they kind of go for an easy, accessible cheese, like provolone, and your spinach, and then maybe a little salt and pepper, but there's not a whole lot of flavor going on there. So what we're going to do is we're going to we're gonna make the the filling, the the vegetative, 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 and the cheese uh, filling is going to be uh, done a little bit with a little bit more care and a little bit of more of an eye toward flavor, texture, and stuff like that. And uh, oh yeah, I, I guess I should mention that in addition to the spinach and the nitrate and things like garlic and in spices hiding, you know. Uh, aromas or sterilizing meat to a certain degree the addition of cheese you know you go back a couple hundred years cheese today is it's really bland like if you look at like the cheeses that you would just buy from the deli section of your grocery store it's a lot of very mild unassuming cheeses like even even the blue cheeses are are very mild but if you go to like a specialty cheese shop there are ooh, a whole myriad of aromas that you will experience. And uh, some are just more stomach-turning than the one before. And yet, in the world of cheese, something that smells like feet, something that smells like, I don't want to use unappetizing words, but something that smells bad can paradoxically suggest a very good flavor, right? So using a, a cheese, even something that we, we understand as being relatively mild, like provolone, if you go back in time a little bit, provolone has like kind of a kind of a funky, sharp sort of flavor and, and aroma to it. And you know, prior to pasteurization, you know, aging cheese in slightly warmer conditions, you know, like a wine cellar, like a fifty-five degree type of cheese cave type in environment, would generally have produced something with a much more a much more forward and polarizing aroma. And that aroma would have probably. Uh, out-competed some of the subtle off smells of a um, just turning cut of beef or lamb or, or pork or something like that. So that would be another reason why um, that ingredient is so popular or historically consistent in the Florentine preparation. All right, so let's talk about what we're putting into this. We are going to use some spinach, definitely, um, but we're going to mix that with some parsley. See, parsley in Mediterranean cooking is such a bright and clean palate cleanser. A lot of times we think about parsley, we just think about dried parsley flakes. It's like, oh, this is just something that really doesn't taste like anything except for a slight metallic 
<laughs> sensation in the mouth, but fresh flat leaf parsley has a really bright, clean flavor and aroma to it. And by using that, um, it adds a little bit of a, a layer of flavor that otherwise wouldn't be there. So we're going to use some flat leaf parsley and we're going to chop that up. Here's another thing is we're going to chop and grate most of the ingredients that we put inside of this uh, unrolled piece of beef. And the reason for that is to not overwhelm the structure of the thing with too much filling in the wrong proportions. A lot of people will buy deli provolone and baby spinach and just layer that in there. And then when you roll it up, it's like way too thick. Like deli cheese, I mean, you think about what is that? Maybe about an eighth of an inch thick. It's a little too thick. It's a little too thick. If you're not just melting it on a burger, it's too much for the center, you know? So what we're going to do is we're going to grate using uh, two different size graters. <laughs> we're going to grate the provolone with the larger holes to get sort of like a, like a, a shredded mozzarella size of a, of a grate on that. And then the parm, then we're going to use Parmesan, and we're going to grate that with a fine grate so that you get like a nice uh, a nice textural contrast between the the softer, milder, melty cheese and the harder, drier, um, you know, Parmesan. We're also going to zest a lemon and get that in there. Another thing, um, citrus zest, very popular in these Florentines. Um, the addition of the citrus oil, like orange oil or lemon oil, a little bit of the acidity. Again, it, it, it all goes into masking bad flavors, highlighting good flavors, adding a little acidity, a little bit of essential oil, and it'll be really nice. So we're going to grate, or not grate, but we're going to zest one lemon, and we're going to season with salt and pepper, and we're going to chop the spinach and the, uh, the parsley and all that stuff and toss it together in a bowl so that you get a nice mixture. And you can see the in the pictures here, I did take a picture of the bowl, the mixing bowl with all of the herbs and chias prepared in it. Now, once you have your, your cut of meat, now if you can get a flank, if you can get a skirt or something like that, trim it up, take some of the, the, the fascia and the, the connective tissue and anything like that off, um, but then get it out, laid out real nice. Some people will, will slice it very thin and pound it out. You can definitely do that. Like put it between two layers of plastic wrap and pound it with a wooden meat mallet. That is certainly an option. You can do that. But you lay all this filling inside of your butterflied and unfurled beef. Now, beef in this case is what we're using. And then very tightly roll this back up. And then using your butcher's twine, we want to tie uh, a number of, uh, of, of trusses on this to hold it all together because we're going to cut this into pinwheels in between each strand of butcher's twine. I think I got four out of my roughly six inch long cut of eye of round, depending on, you know, if you get a, a pack of uh, skirt steaks or something like that, you can make multiple ones. You can cut them up however you want. Cut those up, make sure we had nice even cuts, a clean face, a nice pinwheel pattern on the inside, which you can see from the pictures, turned out fantastic. And then put those on a plate and put them in the fridge for about an hour. Let them dry out a little bit, you know, get get a little tackiness on the surface. You can salt them at this point, salt them on the outside and, the, and, the, and on the face, on the cut face. They'll already be seasoned on the inside because you've seasoned the inside of the beef before you rolled it up and everything. Let that dry a little bit in the fridge. And then I uh, used a cast iron pan, a little bit of avocado oil, a high temperature, clear, 
relatively neutral cooking oil, put a little bit of that in there and got it like smoking hot. Here's the thing, we wanna get a nice crust on all of the surface area of this piece of meat. And then we want to uh, be able to back the heat off and just gently cook through to a medium rare, you know, 130 internal temperature or something like that. So that all the cheese doesn't melt. And that's the reason we chose provolone and Parmesan. A lot of people go with like something like a Fontina. You know, they think like, oh, I want like a good, creamy, melty cheese. The problem is a lot of times that can be so melty that it just runs out of the meat that you've uh, bound it up in. And you don't want to lose all of your cheese because it'll also pull with it all the herbs and the seasonings and everything like that out with it. So by using, you know, the provolone is fairly melty as it is. Parmesan has the ability to melt, but it has a very low moisture content to begin with. So that'll kind of act as almost like a binding agent. So you don't have to use like a breadcrumb or something like that, or you don't have to dredge it in flour. You can get that in there. Uh, so we're going to put that in and we're going to try to turn this not too often. So I'm a big fan of whenever I'm cooking steaks in a cast iron pan is to once I've started the searing process, the Maillard reaction, I want to turn them very often so that we're always taking the uh, the cooler side of the meat and then exposing it to the high temperature of the pan and the oil so that it's constantly like re-caramelizing the surface and that's how you get a nice crust on on the meat in this case we want to um we want to sear this pretty hard to begin with and then turn it you know maybe four or five times throughout the cooking process to get a little bit of crust on the outside definitely hold it with a pair of tongs hold it up on its edge and get a nice sear around the edge of uh of the floor of the pinwheel and then and then whenever you have achieved the internal temperature that you're looking for remove it from heat and let that rest for a while okay let it rest let it settle down because uh, the last thing you want you kind of want everything to be the same temperature and these the different textures and densities and compositions of the different layers they're going to conduct heat in at different rates uh, they're going to disperse the heat in different ways you know meat when meat is exposed to high heat, the first thing that happens is it kind of shrinks back against it. It tightens up all those muscle fibers retract, which causes it to, to shrink a little bit and to become initially become a little bit tough. And then as the heat penetrates there and the juices start flowing, that it loosens up a little bit afterwards. But the main way that meat uh, conducts heat is through kind of a convection currents of, of, of liquids in the fibers heating up and then wicking that heat into the center of the cut and then spilling out into the pan and dissipating heat that way. With cheese, you know, it's more of a, it's less of a water transport of heat and more of a, a fat or a lipid transport, you know, slightly different or whatever. But the point is, we don't want to overcook it, but we do want to cook it through. And the best way to do that is get get that sear on the outside to begin with, and then drop the heat and let that heat slowly penetrate through the mass of the pinwheel in that order. The opposite order would be to start it off on low heat and get it kind of like warm through and then sear it real hard at the end. Problem with that is that a lot of that cheese is going to melt and potentially uh disappear if you uh if you don't sear that off on the on the exposed surfaces first okay so that's basically and then of course you know we uh, i want to say like uh, i'm gonna say 
oh, I serve this with uh, asparagus and, and baked sweet potatoes. I really, I, I made all this stuff, took a picture of it, threw it in the fridge for tomorrow because I'm not eating anything tonight. Um, but I did make a side that is interesting. It's unique. And it is literally, I, I know a lot of these things I say are very simple. This is literally the simplest thing you could possibly make. And I am not taking credit for this. I can't remember what the name of the YouTube channel is, but the guy who runs his, his last name, I believe is Townsend. And the whole channel is about like historical foods. And so it'll be foods prepared in colonial America or Edwardian Britain or, you know, Victorian Britain or where different places. Long time ago, some would be um, common dishes, some would be uncommon dishes, some would be celebratory dishes. But this one episode I watched was basically just a baked onion. Easiest thing in the world. An onion roasted in the oven whole and then consumed as is. I dressed it up a little bit. You know, I, I, I cut the, the, the tops of the onions off so that I have an exposed onion surface, drizzled it with a little bit of olive oil, salt, and pepper, wrapped them up in foil, put them in the oven for a half hour, 400 degrees for a half hour, kind of like a small potato. But the thing with onions is they have a, a high water content. So when onions cook, they really, they soften up, they, they, they uh, develop their flavor. They, they wilt, they become translucent. They smell amazing. A lot, of, a lot of water content in there that's going to burst forth out of these cell walls and soften everything up. That is going to cause the onion to basically steam in this foil envelope, so to speak. And uh, the sugars in the, in the onion are going to become very forward on the palate. Like the onion is going to be sweet and oniony and roasty, toasty, delicious and I can't wait to eat it tomorrow for lunch to find out how it was. But I returned on great. It's just like you would think like, oh, um, what is a unique side dish that I can get somebody talking about? You know, it's like, okay, we're going to take this onion and we're just going to roast it. It's literally a roasted onion. I'll try to remember. Hopefully, I'll remember. I'll put a link to that episode of whatever this show is that I'm trying to remember about the roasted onion. And you can watch it for yourself and see that it is, it is simple and it is fantastic. It's sometimes... Sometimes the simplest flavors or flavor combinations are just incredible, you know, like, wow, nothing has ever tasted as oniony as this particular onion. And that's, uh, that was a fun one. So if we're going with a, like a historical origin for this one very common food, you know, the Florentine pinwheel, I'm stumbling over a lot. the Florentine pinwheel, that's how I wanted to say it. We can pair that up with kind of a more esoteric, but infinitely simpler a side dish of a whole roasted onion and i honestly i mean you know you can see these pinwheels at the grocery store you go to the the meat counter of giant eagle or you know, whole foods or whatever chances are they'll have beef pinwheels prepared for you chances are the cheese is too thick the uh the spinach was just you know two days from being out of date from over in the produce section you know it's basically it's reusing things to extend the shelf life or to, to move some, some product that would otherwise be thrown away. And it's not the best thing in the world. So you, you can buy the, the components of this, construct it yourself. It'll be a little bit better. It'll be closer to being, uh, you know, the, the greater than the sum of its parts. And I think uh, you will enjoy it. And plus, there is nothing more satisfying than once you've, 
you've you've rolled this piece of meat up and you've tied it off, you know, really tight, and then you make that first cut and you have like this perfect symmetrical spiral inside, like a it's like looking into the cross section of a nautilus shell. It's really uh, it's really satisfying, and uh, yeah, that's it. So that's uh, a Florentine style pinwheel, something that I'm sure will be very delicious tomorrow whenever I actually eat it and enjoy it. Um, but for now, take a look at the pictures and take a look at that uh, the video that I linked to um, for the roasted onion because um, <laughs> I'm just I'm just enamored with that. It's like oh hey, I just throw an oven, I can just throw an onion in the oven. <laughs> and it's really good. It might be the best thing that you've eaten that day. Wow. I, I'm smitten with the idea. So give that a shot. Okay. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.